And what's going on now is that, you know, we have a kind of globalization of ideas going on. We're getting ideas from different kinds of cultures and ideas about how to organize society. And I think this is something that should be on the table, at least when you're discussing, you know, how it, it I don't think you can have Anglo-Saxon neoliberalism as the sort of only way of describing a free society. You know, this would be an alternative, say that you don't have to, you know, you don't have to have that kind of idea, where you, which is actually very communitarian, because you're actually putting the individual at the mercy very much of the family or, or, you know, a church or a charity or something like that. So I just think it's sort of interesting to have it there as an as a alternative kind of uh, model. Welcome to Crossing North a podcast where we learn from Nordic and Baltic artists, scholars, and community members to better understand our world, our communities, and ourselves. Coming to you from the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle, I'm your host, Colin Joya Connors. Henrik Berggren is a prominent Swedish historian, biographer, and journalist who focuses on 20th century Swedish politics. His longtime co-author and collaborator, Lars Trägård, is a professor of history at Ersta Hundalbrekka University College in Sweden. The duo are perhaps best known as the co-authors of the 2006 Swedish bestseller Arsvenskan Menehua. The book describes a Swedish model of individualism in which the state supports the autonomy of the individual and thereby enables the individual to pursue authentic relationships. The book was widely read, discussed, and debated in Nordic newspapers and academic journals, and it continues to enliven debates today. Now, thanks to the University of Washington Press, their book appears for the first time in English translation as the Swedish theory of love. Praised as the long-awaited translation of a classic Swedish text, Henrik and Lars's book offers much food for thought to American audiences interested in understanding the philosophy behind the Swedish welfare model, as well as those interested in imagining alternative political futures here in the United States or abroad. Our own Professor Andy Nestingen joins me and the two authors in a discussion of their book, its legacy, and its new English translation. I am Lars Tregard. I'm um, one of the co-authors of the book, uh, The Swedish Theory of Love. And I'm Henrik Berggren, and I am the other co-author of the book. Uh, I'm Andy Nestingen. I'm a professor here at the University of Washington Department of Scandinavian Studies and an interested reader and engaged uh, thinker about the book, The Swedish Theory of Love. So it's the title of the book, The Swedish Theory of Love. What is it? Well, you know, the Swedish title originally was different. It was called, uh, roughly translated, Our Swedes Human. And that resonates well uh, in Swedish right? as a sort of provocation. But we felt it didn't come off quite as well in English. And the Swedish theory of love is one of the two key concepts in the book. Uh, the other one is statist individualism. Uh, but the, we felt the Swedish theory of love would resonate better as a title. <laughs> so we chose that. And um, we can elaborate on what, what we mean by that as well. And it's, it's about 
this notion that we have that in Sweden there's a particular kind of a peculiar way of thinking about love and friendship which tends to emphasize the idea of autonomy and free choice in your relationships, even these intimate relationships. So uh, autonomy and independence are key uh, values. And that runs counter, I think, to the way most people around the world would think about love, uh, more as something that has to do with interdependence. So there is something provocative about this theory in this more sort of global context. And that's one theme of the book. Yeah, and this theme, I think, you know, it sort of exists on different levels because I think anybody who goes to Sweden is aware of the fact that, you know, you don't buy rounds, for instance. You don't pay for each other at a restaurant. You know, you really want to not be uh, in debt to another person because this sort of damages the uh, authenticity of the relationship. But then, of course, that's on the, you know, everyday level. But then if we move upwards, we also find that the whole... Swedish uh, sort of political system is geared towards the individual as, as the basic unit of society. So you don't have very much, you know, law that, you know, actually defines or restricts the family. It's much more of a voluntary relationship. And, you know, you've done away with a lot of the kind of uh, marriage laws that you have in other countries. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, Loris, you said that the resonance of the Swedish title was a little bit different, that it was a bit of a provocation right. uh, to the Swedish reader. Could you explain that a little bit more um, yeah. in helping us understand the, the title of the Swedish Theory of Love? Yeah, the, 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 there was a book um, released in Sweden in 1946 by a very uh, bitter, disgruntled Swedish journalist who was in love with Italy. And he was comparing Sweden to Italy. And he felt Italians that had a much better sense of love and friendship. And they were, they were passionate and amorous people. And in comparison, the Swedes, you know, were cold and, you know, totally focuses on themselves and too preoccupied with individual freedom. And, and he really, really didn't like it. So he wrote this book, you know, called Are Swedes Human? And he had chapters like The Divorced People, and Do Swedes Hate Children, mm -hmm. you know, titles like that. Yeah. And we just thought this was really, really uh, funny. But it was also something about it which pointed in an interesting direction. And it was part of a longer tradition of literature on what we call back then national character. And uh, a lot of that literature tended to emphasize that Swedes were particularly inept when it came to social relations. And they much preferred to be alone in nature. That's when they were at their most happiest. So that particular tradition of thinking, which was highly exaggerated and in many ways very, very funny, still contained some sort of kernel of truth that we thought was a good point of inspiration right, for our own analysis. I mean, one basis of this analysis was actually the emigration to the U.S. Uh, during the 19th century. I mean, you know, as you probably know, I mean, it's about a million Swedes who, you know, left their home country. And from the perspective of, of the elite, you know, this, it couldn't be that there's anything wrong with Sweden. So obviously, there was something wrong with these people. You know, they were too freedom-seeking. They were too individualistic. They were moving away from the cozy sort of collective, uh, you know, Swedish society. And, and, you know, this idea was sort of, it kept on going because I think, as Laura said, there is a kernel of truth in it. And it, you know, comes back the whole time during the whole 20th century. But by the late 20th century, it's actually being, uh, you know, carried on by, by foreign observers, you know, who are 
looking at Sweden, and then they're looking at this tradition, and they find an explanation for why Swedes are like they are. So, you know, the, the, it becomes rather sort of self-enforcing, this whole idea. I guess if I could go back, we're, we're dealing with yeah. stereotypes that are often told of the Swedes are, are cold yeah. people, hard exactly. to get to yeah. know, not that amorous in yep. their relationships. Yeah. And what you're saying is that there is a an element of autonomy, you said, yeah. that is important. Yeah. It's maybe counter to most people's thoughts of what is a good foundation for a relationship. Right. Uh, could you maybe tell a little bit more yeah. about I that? Yeah, I mean, this is a good, good way of posing the question because, <clears throat> I mean, I think if we think about it from an American perspective, right, you know, the, the standard cliché, right, has been that Americans are the great individualists, right, and the Swedes are, you know, socialists, you know, mm. preoccupied, right, with solidarity and, you know, the various kinds of values that tend to actually submit the individual, right, to the interest of society, let's put it that way. And, and so one aim that we had was to turn, in a way, uh, these ideas, these sort of cliches, right, a little bit upside down and instead emphasize the complexity of this type of emphasis on what we call the Swedish theory of love. And, and also what we are trying to show in the book, that it isn't so simple that the Swedes are just simply like sort of autistic when it mm. comes to social relations, but it's that this choice about voluntary relations doesn't mean that you don't have any relations. It means that they are based on a different type of logic. Mm. So, and, and one example we often bring up is that of the elderly in Sweden, right? uh, that if you ask them uh, the sort of fairly straightforward questions, which is done in service, uh, what do you prefer in your old age, to be dependent on your own sort of wonderful children or on the institutions of the welfare state? They then answer that they prefer to be dependent on the institutions of the welfare state. And, you know, so... We why, some, why would that be? Yeah, well, this is we're getting to. Uh, so, you know, one possibility is simply that they know their children very well, right, you know. Uh, but it's very... That's too... That's not very nice because if you have another question, which is, do you want your children to visit you? They almost all say yes, right? So the point is the following, and that's the heart of the Swedish theory of love, that it, it's, it's not a question of being asocial in some sort of drastic way, but it's wanting to have your social relations based right on free choice and voluntariness rather than you know a duty uh, and, and that's really the heart so it doesn't mean that there are no social relations it means that they are tend to be defined by these sort of ideas of voluntariness equality and autonomy and we see this in other contexts for example association of life you know organizations sweden and us are very similar in that we have strong civil societies but in Sweden, is the, the predominant model, right, is the membership model, right, which is, again, it's the same logic, right? You know, you are individual members who are freely enter into association with others. You choose your own representatives and so forth, right? It's not a hierarchical or patriarchal type of organization. I'll ask this question to yeah. Henrik. Yeah. Um, in that cultural of individualism that has been shaped yeah. to a great de degree by state institutions, the question I had was, you know, where does trust fit in there? I know that's an, a key word in the book. And when one thinks of individualism, you know, one often thinks, well, I'll trust my own lights, right? That there's this idea of because I'm strong in my own view of myself and my, my positions and, and I, I don't want to – I, I want to make sure that I make the decisions as an individual mm -hmm. that – and I don't want to depend on others. Therefore, I trust myself but I may not trust others. 
Well, that's, I wonder. I wonder how, like how that that may be one direction it would go, sort of in an American context. Definitely, I'd love to hear you talk about that. Well, definitely, I mean, but trust. I mean, that's when you're talking about sort of rugged individualism, mm. right? I mean, this idea of the frontier, where the, you know, you 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 break new ground and you're totally self-sufficient and you're very suspicious. Well, not suspicious, but you don't you know, really trust other people. You have to be um, uh, self-providing. Uh, the thing about you know this idea of of this weird theory of love is that you're admitting the fact that the individual is dependent. And the thing is that you, we are not autonomous beings. I mean, that's the one thing we're not. We can't live by ourselves. I mean, this is a starting point. So the, the thing is, you have to be dependent on somebody else. You've got to serve somebody, as, as the poet said, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have a choice. I mean, you can, you can, you know, be dependent on your family or your community or your church or something like that, uh, which, of course, puts you you know, in a, in a, some kind of dependence relationship with these people. Uh, and, of course, makes you independent, perhaps, of the state. But you can also think the other way around. I prefer, actually, uh, dependence on the state, a sort of impersonal, uh, you know, bureaucratic, uh, sort of fair institutions, if you think it is. And that's where trust comes in, because you have to trust the state. Now, trusting the state can be a, you know, it's a big step, especially in a lot of places where the state really is a pretty awful mechanism of oppression. But when you have a country like Sweden, where you have sort of the state has evolved probably peacefully by rule of law for a couple of hundred years, and you have this trust, you know, that can actually work. And, you know, the upside of this, I think this is the thing you have to understand. Why is this attractive? Why would it be attractive with the Swedish theory of love? I'm not saying it's attractive for everybody, definitely. But, you know, if you're making a choice, you can at least see some advantages to it. And I think it's the idea that, you know, if I'm not dependent on uh, my spouse or my parents or other people, then I can really know they love me. You know, you know, it's an authentic relationship. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, if if I'm married to somebody and I'm really dependent on their wealth and income, you know, or other way, if they're dependent on me, rather, I would say, you know, am I, can I really be sure that this person loves me or is it just my money or my position <laughs> and things like that? Now, obviously, you know, a society of just totally autonomous people who wouldn't be dependent on each other. It's a pretty horrible society, right? So, so, so I mean, there are extremes here. And the other extremes is basically your, your, you know, clan or your, you know, totally sect-repressed, you know, where everybody's, you know, uh, totally dependent on each other. But, you know, within the normal range of things, I mean, you know, these are the cha- choices you can make. You know, who do you want to be dependent on? Who do you want to trust? Mm-hmm. I just want to ask a, a quick follow-up okay. question. Um, in the book, you trace a sort of a long yeah. uh, uh, genealogy uh, of that, uh, that those, those ideas of trust and, and individualism. And, and as I recall, in some of the discussions of Alva Merdahl in the 1930s, she says that, well, as they're forming these uh, new institutions and, and, and providing childcare and so forth, that the conditions were right yeah. for this to develop. And in that arc that you trace in arguments like that, the conditions are right. It's very specific to Sweden. Mm. So I wonder is, first of all, oftentimes your argument has been taken to mean Nordic. Mm. So Swedish and Nordic are sort of synonyms Mm. in a lot of people's reading of of, of the earlier book and and other other articles you've read. Mm. So I wonder like, are Sweden and Nordic the same? And then second, like what is, is this an export product or Mm. is this something that's just Mm. unique to Sweden and really, it helps us understand the particular nation state, Mm. but perhaps has limitations beyond yeah. those that framework. 
Well, you know, I, I think there, there, there are two questions here, right? So let, let's unpack it and take the first one, the sort of the Nordic Swedish, and then we can talk about mm. sort of the model and universalism aspect, right? Mm. And I think that uh, with, with respect to, to the Nordic versus Swedish, I think that we are simply quite sensitive to the fact that we feel like we can say certain things about Sweden because we've studied it and we, we, we know a bit about mm. it. Uh, uh, and you you know, um, you know how the Nordics right, tend to be quite preoccupied with you know, local differences. Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. So that even though I would probably argue that uh, there's a lot of commonalities, right? So there's a lots of our arguments probably apply fairly well to Finland or, or Norway or, or Denmark. But there are there there is also a case to be made for that Sweden is a little bit extreme, right? You know, in this particular alliance between state and individual. So that's just sort of the short answer to that. Uh, with respect to the model, you know, there it gets really quite interesting, you know, because I think what we argue is we start our book really with kind of a conversation with a German philosopher, Immanuel Kant, you know, who has this, I think, very important insight, which he refers to as man's asocial sociability. And what he says really that everywhere in the world, right, we have a situation where human beings, on the one hand, strive for maximum individual sovereignty, right, to make decisions for themselves. On the other hand, they are absolutely also forced by necessity to form society because they cannot survive on their own, right? So it's a task for all societies, right, to handle that fundamental you know, tension, right? Uh, and what our argument is that in that sense, whatever is done in Sweden, right, you know, is, is certainly is relevant, but it is also a particular, right, a solution, right, to a universal challenge, if you will. Uh, and where we as historians are very hesitant as opposed to, let's say, an economist or a political scientist or sociologist to, to speak in terms of a model, that goes back to the fact that we as historians are very aware of the peculiarities and particularities, right? That makes it very difficult to say we can export this as a model someplace mm. else. I mean, regardless of whether people want it <laughs> to mm. be exported to them. But I think, you know, to be a little bit more, if you get more concrete, you can talk about certain types of policies that, that uh, one might, you know, learn something about. I mean, we have our particular system for taxation, for example, or child care and so forth and so on. And you can go down to that level, right? And then you can have a discussion. But the model is such in toto, I would not mm -hmm. uh, claim that you can export that. Can I add on something here? Um, you know, in Denmark, they thought the title, the original Swedish title, is the Swede human, Hashvanskin Manitha, very, very funny. They really, really liked it because they, Swede, Danes consider Swedes to be, you know, asocial, bureaucratic, stiff, you know, and all that. Um, and they also, but when they read the book, when somebody did at least, I mean, they reacted and sort of felt that, um, what, individuals, Swedes, Swedes are not individuals, you know, they like to hurt people, you know, they really follow, you know, the, the common trend. But you have to understand one thing that, you know, we're not arguing for an individualism that means that you're, you know, eccentric or super original or anything like that. I mean, wh what we're saying is that the idea is that the individual is the basic unit of society and you have a society that sees to it that that uh, individual citizen has as much freedom of choice mm -hmm. as possible. That That's the whole point of that kind of individualism. I have to ask one quick follow-up question, uh, Henrik. You, you put your finger on a point that I think many 
visitors to the Nordic countries or more uh, people who live there have noticed that there is this notion of individualism and, mm. and strong autonomy and yet great conformity yeah. in fashion, in interior decoration, yeah, exactly. in yeah. architectural styles in which it seems that it's not the most individual but the most conformist type yeah. of society. How do you square those two? Well, I mean, I think I think you can square them in the sense that, um, you know, it's not necessarily that if people have a free choice, they're going to become very original or eccentric. I mean, I would say actually that societies that are, you know, more communitarian and where you have sort of many pluralities, that's a much better condition for creating very original people in a sense, because you can, you can have little bubbles in society where you can develop certain, you know, uh, ideas and traits and behaviors and whatever, and, and sort of really go forward with this. You know, this is sort of a very, this is a model for the whole society, which creates a kind of idea of a, you know, it's the nation state, it's the common, so, so I don't see those as opposing each other. Um, hopefully, of course, I mean, you'll still have original people within this system, but but it doesn't sort of, there's, not, there's no sort of necess necessity of this kind of individualism. I think it's important just to sort of, you know, again, stress the fundamentals here with respect to the, what we call a Swedish theory of love. It, it is, it's about autonomy, yeah. right? It, it's, it's about, you know, not feeling that you're stuck in unequal power relationships. Yeah. That's the heart of it, right? It's not about, you know, difference or, you know, anything yeah. of that sort. I usually say Swedes are uh, individuals who all buy the same furniture yeah. at Ikea, right? Yeah. And, and, you, and, and Swedes tend not to be very impressed, right, you know, with people who think that their individuality is expressed through consumption because there's not much depth to that, right? <laughs> so, you know, and I think that this kind of individuals in, the, in America and the, or Britain, you know, it does tend, like Henry was saying, tied to a, a sort of a, kind of a glorification of eccentricity, right, you know, as, as the ultimate expression, right? And I agree. I think that can be wonderful, right? But they are two different species of individualism, right? I, I really like what you just said there about uh, individualism not being measured through consumption, mm. right. <laughs> the mm -hmm. things that you buy, but more through the things that you do and the mm. values that you hold. It, yeah, it is kind of a false dichotomy to have individualism and community on two ends because communities are made through relationships. And what mm. you're talking about is a way to have and build authentic relationships. Yeah, so yeah. just a a different way of thinking about how to get from one point mm -hmm. to another. I, I, th I think this is, and you know, we are often stress, and, and we do it in the book, that the type of individualism we're talking about is connected to power, right? And that means that it's also related to issues like children's rights, you know, uh, gender equality, uh, rights of the elderly, uh, different types of, let's say, sexual minorities, right? So, you know, it's all about, you know, this kind of providing that space of autonomy and freedom, right, for different types of individuals who in the traditional society were distinctly unfree within the framework of these collectivities. And, and this is what my quarrel oftentimes with, with American uh, libertarians, let's say, right, is that they are so preoccupied with the state as the only collectivity that they really, you know, want to kind of control, right, in terms of individual freedom, that they sort of disregard all of the intermediary, you know, collectivities, right? And this is what, what Henry was saying, that's because in the U.S., both the left and the right tend towards a very communitarian understanding of the good life, 
right? Family values, belonging to an ethnic community or a religious group and so forth, is a very natural way, right, of thinking about, you know, the good life. Uh, and that's very different from what we see, you know, in the Swedish context, where we're preoccupied with with a different set of challenges, essentially. You know, I, I have, um, since the COVID started, I have a digital drink every other Sunday with American friends. And we discuss, discuss a lot of politics and, we, you know, we agree on a lot of things. But when we sometimes get into these discussions about, for instance, uh, schooling, you notice that there's a real, real difference. When I sort of propose the idea that, you know, schools are for children and making them into adult citizens, and therefore the state has certain rights in prescribing what should be taught, and, you know, the parents are not necessarily the ones who should, you know, arbitrate that. That's a very hard idea for them because they feel that, you know, parental rights are really important, and this is sort of infringing upon the communities that the parents belong to. Like, you know, if you have a religious idea, you know, you have the right to bring up your children uh, in this idea, in, in, in this tradition. Um, and that's, I think, where it, you know, where it collides. Now, that said, of course, we have gotten in Sweden much more pluralism in schools, too. I mean, homeschooling is not allowed in Sweden, but we do have religious schools and things like that. So it's not like we sort of have some kind of Stalinist school system here but but still i mean it's really different in thinking about how you can how much you can intervene in the family basically i really like the way that you have given us extra examples mm -hmm. that the theory of love is not just about romantic mm -hmm. love mm -hmm. but how parents elderly parents mm -hmm. and their children mm -hmm. uh, relate to each other when the elderly parents need care or you brought up uh, children's right mm -hmm. as well, and you've connected right. that to education. Mm -hmm. I think that maybe is an example that a lot of our students here at the university would be able to relate to mm -hmm. because so much of college education is paid for by the parents. Exactly. Yeah. And parents have opinions about what their children should exactly. study. And so the choice of what do I major in mm -hmm isn't necessarily a free choice. Yeah. That, that's, it, that's, it. that's how, in some way, we started <laughs> that's with the book. That's where the book started. Yeah, because <laughs> I, I arrived here, you know, as a 17-year-old, and, and then I went on a tour. After, this was last year, high school, you know, and then I went to California where I wanted to go, right? And I went to, to all of the colleges, and I asked, you know, the question, two questions. I said, you know, like, with, if, if I get accepted on the academic rounds, you know, like, you know, then what happens economically, right? Because even back then, right, it was still pretty expensive, right? especially for a Swede, right? And uh, and most of them said, look, you know, we, you know, we have financial aid, but only for residents, right? Except for Pomona College, the, one of the Claremont Colleges, you know, so, Southern California. And they had, you know, a sort of more colorblind approach, right, to financial aid. So I love that. And so, but then I asked them a question, I said, but then how do I get that, right? You know, oh, it's no problem. We have some application forms here. And they, they would hand out two, two sets of forms. Right? One was about my own income and fortune, right? So that was easy, right? A bunch of zeros and a signature, right? <laughs> and then they gave me another set, which was about my parents. So I, so I said then, this is a typical suite here, right? So would, would the, they don't have anything to do with me financially. You know, I'm an adult. So why should they fill this out? And they are sort of speaking to me more slowly, <laughs> <laughs> explaining carefully that in America, right, you know, parents are expected and are very happy, right, to pay forever and ever, you know, for their children. So I said, well, these are admirable people, clearly. I said. But I said, there's a problem here. And this is the problem that you brought up. Yeah. I said, what if they want me to do something useful? 
in my life, right? <laughs> Study like economics or you know pre-med or pre-law or something like that, where I might actually have a chance to make a living later on. Uh, let's say that instead I like to do something like study history. Right? Clearly useless, you know, no hope of ever getting a job, right? Uh, isn't that you know an, an undue exercise of power over me as an autonomous individual, right? They looked at me like I was from Mars, right? You know, but the problem is a real one, I and mean, that's what you are pointing to, right? That you know, you 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 you, you what we've tried to achieve in in Sweden here is a system that will maximize right the ability right for for all, and it, there is an emphasis on young people, even if it includes issues around gender and elderly. But the the start of this alliance between state and individual was really an alliance between the state and the child. Mm -hmm. The idea that all children right regardless right of their circumstances should be able to you know realize themselves according to their own will right and not to be limited right but either by poverty nor by exercise of parental power right you know so I said I think you you're, you're putting yeah, your finger really yeah. on the heart of the matter here in your point yeah and it, and it might be interesting to add I mean you know in in the early 60s when they introduced student loans there's a whole big discussions of how they were going to be set up and what they arrived at was that they should be, you know, t not means tested in any way. I mean, it shouldn't be have anything to do with your parents' income, nor your spouses, because of course they could be, you know, women mostly would want to study, and you know their men would be financing them. So they should also get student loans, regardless whether their men were millionaires or not. So the idea behind it was exactly what you're talking about: that you know you should. Be free to make that kind of choice, and and you know possibly ruin your life by studying art or whatever you know, uh, and and it's also I mean it's, it this, this really goes all through the system. I mean there are instances of means testing in the Swedish welfare state, but it's not very prevalent. And one interesting debate was when you were actually giving uh, you know dole, I mean cash benefit, you know cash support to people who are very poor. The question was, should you count in, if they had children and the children were working, should you count their incomes into the family income? And they arrived at, no, of course not. You know, even if the family is poor and they have a minor who is, you know, making extra money, that's his money and not the family's money. So it's sort of this, it really goes through the whole system, this kind of idea of, you know, you go with the individual, not with the, the collective or the family. Yeah. And I, of course, have to just follow up because I know you're joking yeah. about the useless uh, majors. <laughs> because, of course, we teach one of those quote-unquote useless majors of Scandinavian studies. But I think what's important to highlight there is the, the kind of thinking that uh, students and in America that their, their parents influence on that of, well, what is the purpose of mm. education? I think you said this before, just with public education. Mm of, well, for the individual, I need to take care of my income, so I need to choose mm. something that's going to get me a good income, and that's going to be the primary yeah. motivation, versus thinking of, well, I'm going to study something that is going to have a benefit mm. not directly to myself necessarily, mm. but a benefit to society, mm. and of course can earn a stable income yeah. that's going to mm. contribute both to the individual and society. And so your choices become... Right, yeah controlled based on yeah. who's going to be taking care of me when I'm yeah. old. Yeah, very much so. But I mean, as you say, I mean, the individual choice there doesn't have to be, I mean, going your own way doesn't necessarily mean you're moving away from solidarity with other people. I mean, it could also be 
actually in direction of, you know, joining other people in some kind of enterprise of, you know. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a paradox here, which I, I think is interesting, you know, you know, there, there sometimes kind of an idea right in America, you know, you, you sort of, it's a free society, of people are free to take risks and, you know, some may, people make it and they become entrepreneurs and start businesses and, you know, it's a sort of a high risk society, but with good outcomes economically. And that's Sweden, conversely, would be like a quasi socialist country where, where you know, it's all everybody lives in this kind of cradle grave security and so forth and so on. And that hinders, right, then innovation and creativity in a capitalist market society. But the fact is the opposite, right? Because you have this kind of a universal social investment scheme, right? You have individuals, right, you know, who are more willing to take risks, right, because they're not afraid, let's say, of losing health care. They're not worried about their children not being able to get an education, right? I mean, stuff that's really important to you if you're Mm -hmm. you're an adult, right? So, and that's one way that I'm understanding the fact that the Nordic countries, Sweden included, right, are among the world's most successful, right, market societies. You know, if you look, you know, at the data comparatively, right, Nordic capitalism is right at the top, right? And there we have a very new view now, you know, of the Nordic countries. You know, it used to be that they were associated with social democracy Mm -hmm. and so forth and so on. But now we see that it's much more complicated, right? You have a strong presence of a state making these social investments, but those are forms of human capital that they're then extremely productive within the framework of private industry uh, in a global market. And, and risk-taking, right, connected to innovation is, is actually a very salient feature, you know, of, of modern economy, in, in not just in Sweden, but in the Nordic countries in general, right? You know. So that's, I think, is another important aspect, you know, of the social contract that sort of enables, right, in a way, you know, a really effective risk-taking in a creative, you know, market and, economy. you know, if you want to take home lessons on the global level, I mean, I sometimes wonder if the people who were very much involved in the transition in Russia in the 90s had been, you know, less concerned with this idea of creating all I mean, their idea was to create very rich people, you know, they realized that they had to get the privatized estate. And their idea was to, well, let's move the money over to very rich people, it's a bit unsavory, you know, it'll be like the robber barons in the 19th century in the US, but the outcome will be good. Because, you know, eventually you'll deal with all the kind of, uh, you know, inequalities and, you know, criminal behavior that these rich capitalists do. And nobody was really thinking about the state, the state's role here. And I think, like, if you if you use the Nordic countries, you actually see that, you know, how essential the state is to the market society. You know, if you want it to function well, I mean, if you want gangster capitalism, fine. I mean, then you can go to Russia or if you want authoritarian capitalism, then go to China. But, you know, if you actually want some kind of, you know, high-powered, you know, market economy, which also is sort of decent, I mean, then look to the Nordic countries. It's an interesting emphasis that you placed in in those comments. I think a lot of people outside the Nordic region might think of the growth of the welfare state as a theological moral discourse. You've talked about Lutheranism a couple of times, and that's some of the ideas about equality and dependence have a very strong kind of moral dimension to them. Mm -hmm. But I think that the argument that you've just made is that yeah. it's an economic machine, yeah. right? That it's the sort of the social engineering version of the discourse mm-hmm. of the welfare state, that it's about empowering people to work and earn a living while having supports mm-hmm. that ensure they can fulfill their life projects. Mm-hmm. And that that's a maximization mm-hmm. of 
the population's labor power for eco- economic mm, outcomes yeah. as much as for it's the right thing to do for moral theological reasons. But there is a moral dimension yeah. here, I think, that is important to stress in, in this context, right? That is a, I would say, and it actually does go back to you know, Protestantism, mm. right? You know, that it, it is a stern moral order. Sometimes I joke and say that Sweden actually, right, in many ways is more sort of like a Republican ideal here than a democratic one. Because it is so much based, right, on the idea of individual responsibility, right? You know, it's unforgiving, actually, right, for those who do not, right, contribute to society. Uh, and and that's something that's often missed in the U.S., right, where you kind of get confused because you, you have had a tradition, right, within the Democratic Party, right, of being concerned with various forms of charity, right? Because you are sort of steeped in a tradition of you have to deal with inequality, the legacy of racism mm-hmm. that you talked about before. Whereas, whereas in Sweden, that's pretty absent, right? There, it's much harsher from a moral standpoint, right? It's very demanding, like, I, you know, this idea of the wholesome worker, right? That gets up in the morning, you know, takes a shower, you know, brushes the hair and, and goes to work, you know, and then on top of that, gets involved in associational life to improve society for the next generation. Th- this was the popular movement tradition in Sweden, you know, which came from this liberal religious background, right, with very tough moral demands of the individuals. Now, I would, I, I, I can see that today maybe that's a bit weaker, but it still is very fundamental to the moral order of, of modern Nordic countries. And I, I would say it's very similar if you go to Norway or Finland. Right? Yeah, and it's, as, you know, the, the best, the absolutely best free religious movements in Sweden, they have incredibly strong demands on themselves, but they're not very moralizing towards other people. I'm really impressed by that. I mean, that is true, sort of a Christian morality. We actually have a high demand on how yourself should act, but you don't engage in this kind of moralizing activity towards everybody else who is, you know, a sinner and, you know, not worthy and all that. And I, you know, maybe it has a bit to do with the Lutheran tradition, I don't know. But also, um, in terms of, I mean, I think it's important to, to, to stress the aspect of self-improvement also in these popular movements, because, you know, if you go back to the 1930s, that famous book, Marquis Child's book, um, Sweden, the Middle Way, one thing that, that people miss about that book, which seems to be just, you think it's about sort of state, the state being between socialism and capitalism, sort of, but the book is very, very much about the cooperative movement, which is very strong then. And the idea behind the co- cooperative movement is actually dealing with capitalism, not from the, from the uh, supply side, but from the demand side. Uh, you actually accept the fact that there is you know, a free market economy, but what you want to do is actually educate the consumers so they become responsible consumers who will buy good things, and therefore you will not you know, create a lot of garbage, basically. Now, I, I wouldn't say it worked, but I'm just saying that you know, this was sort of an informed idea behind this sort of acceptance of the market economy, but then a great faith in you know, the producers and the consumers that they would actually you know, use the market economy in a moral fashion. I think that maybe a lot of our listeners might not be uh, completely familiar with what are these benefits of the Swedish welfare state. Mm. I was with a group of students this summer in Sweden, and we went to the Karolinska Institute. Mm. We're getting a tour from one of the doctors in the leukemia wards, Mm. and we asked them, what does it cost for the patients who come in here to have this treatment? And the doctors said, nothing. And the students were just 
flabbergasted. Yeah. They had yeah. no yeah. idea. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. could you tell us some of the, the ways that yeah. the state supports individuals? Well, I mean, it, you know, we usually have, we have this sort of slogan in, in Sweden, you know, which is always, you know, repeated, you know, like, Vård, Skola, Omsorg, you know, which means like, you know, health care, you know, you know, schools, elderly care, essentially, right, you know, and, 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 and that does fairly well summarize, you know, the fundamentals, the core, the core project, if you will, right, uh, which really is this idea of free universal access to schooling and down the road education, right? Um, free access to healthcare, and it's not entirely free because there are you know certain payments you make right, to discourage right overuse, right? You know, so it's not entirely free, but by American standards, it, it, it looks pretty free. Well, the right? thing, it, I mean, it, it costs something if you you know if you have a blister on your foot and you have to go to the doctor. You know, the local polar clinic, you have to pay. But if you have leukemia, you don't have to pay. Yeah. <laughs> you see my point. Oh, they, I think yeah, you have pay, to pay probably the first visit. The first visit, you yeah. Know, but that's so sort it, of but, relative to the yeah, whole thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, but it, it, it's precisely there is there's certain little barriers, but they are not barriers that that will kill you, so to speak, yeah. right? You know, and then then, of course, elderly care, right, which is, you know, is, is actually a huge cost. And that, that, you know, is becoming, I mean, both health care, and elderly care in Sweden is becoming more and more increasingly as people live longer mm-hmm. and the capacity for very expensive care, mm-hmm. right, you know, is accelerating. You know, Sweden is also, like all countries in the West, right, are facing, right, enormous economic challenges. Because if you look at the, when we started the welfare state in 1950s, right, there was so little care really available at the advanced level in healthcare that everybody can get everything. Today, you know, questions about prioritizing, you know, uh, is becoming more salient. And that has then introduced also a, a new market for, for private, you know, insurance and private care. And, and that does have sort of a, a potentially, right, a segregating effect where the rich, right, can start to pay extra. And it's not just the super rich, right? You also see people, the unions, for example, mm-hmm. now, right? In order to survive and keep their memberships, right, uh, they are starting to introduce that their members get access to a private complementary health insurance, mm-hmm. for example, right? So that's a growing market. But I, now we're getting really, really technical. But I just think it's so interesting because there's a debate about it in this Sweden. I mean, some people want to close down these private insurances. But the argument against that is that these, these private insurances, they're connected. What you're actually getting is the public health care, but they're just helping you get a bit more of it. And if you opt out of that, you're going to get totally private uh, insurance with private hospitals and private clinics. And then a lot of the rich people will have no incentive to you know, participate in the tax system and all that. So it's, you know, you see how the debate goes. How do we, how do we keep everybody within the fold? And at the same time, you know, Mm. You know, catered to people's needs. Well, it, it, you know, it, it, it gets really tricky. You know, when when yeah. you get to these levels. So, it, so it is an absolutely moving target. But I mean, that's just to kind of give you the short answer, right? And then, you know, we can talk a lot more about the kind of complications that are occurring as we speak, right? But well, that's but, the fundamental. I mean, you can bring up other aspects. I mean, I mean, you know, I think we have a certain scaling down now of the ambitions of, of welfare. But if you look at it during the the height of it. I mean, it was just not. It wasn't just about welfare. It was about culture. I mean, you know, you had the. There's a great deal of talk about the the communala um, music school and whatever the word is in English. The the uh, you know these free uh, music schools they would have in every municipality, and you know that that then is sort of 
some say the explanation because Sweden is so successful, you know, in the in the popular music market, you know, where we're after US and Britain is the greatest exporter of pop music, basically. So actually giving kids access to culture and music has actually turned into a very lucrative industry. Uh, so, I mean, the welfare state has really had ambitions, not just in terms of taking care of basic needs, but actually of this mm. kind of yeah. self-realization we're talking about. Yeah, I think it comes back to what we were saying before, yeah. how what you major in could be yeah. good for yourself and exactly. good for others. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and that's why now I think, you know, we see how increasingly... Uh, Swedish social scientists, right, are starting to talk less about the welfare state, which, in, especially in English, right, is a very loaded term, right, you know, in a sort of negative way, instead of talk about a social investment state, right, so that, you know, again, we're back to this kind of concept of, of the market economy as opposed to the state, right, and so the idea here is that the example that Henrik just gave, right, you know, with music schools, you know, can view those as, as forms of investment, right, that they will have a payoff, both at the individual level and at the societal level. And I think that is a useful way of thinking about it, you know, way all the way through, right? Because if you are starting to think about that we all live in that type of, of market society, then making investments, right, you know, creating cultural capital, mm. right, becomes really important. And it it's probably should be fairly broad because you can't predict it, right? You know, you can just enable in many different ways, right? Uh, young people to develop skills, right? That can become very productive. So that's that's one way of sort of sort of moving away from the old welfare state kind of way of thinking about as handouts, you know, <laughs> money for nothing. <laughs> I think you wrote the ori the original book appeared in two thousand six. Now yeah. the translation's out. Um, that's a lot of time. Yeah. And we, if we look, let's just take that. What is that? Uh, four, Sixteen years. Yeah. Sixteen years. 16 years from now, will the book have the same relevance to uh, contemporary Sweden? It seems like it really captures some key facets of the society, but those facets, as your comments a second ago, the social investment state, they're changing. The discourses around the state oh. are changing. You know, there's a new right-wing government in power. Yeah, they're, they're, what, what's, gonna, what, what's your prognosis? Well, <laughs> look, look, I think that, you know, obviously, you know, you... As a historian, I mean, you know, you, you sort of strive to write for the ages, but obviously you're writing in your time, and we are products of our time, and the questions and the way we pose this is, I mean, not just if you go back, I mean, the way we're thinking about these things in the 90s when we started, I mean, that was much more effective what was going on then. I mean, that was the fall of communism. It was sort of, you know, a lot of critique of the state and all that, and we sort of wanted to not, you know, save the state, but actually, you know, show that the state could have a positive function also. So, of course, you know, we are products of our time and, you know, things have changed since we wrote the book. But at the same time, and, you know, Lars can contradict me if he wants to, but I sort of feel that, you know, oddly enough, it turns out that these national trajectories seem to be much stronger than I ever thought. I mean, if you look around the world today, when, you know, everybody's retreating back, you know, from globalization, from international cooperation into these states, what are they turning back to? They're turning back to their own self-created identity. You know, the Brits are going for the British Empire. Putin wants to recreate the 19th century empire. And I think that's, the, you know, the question for Sweden is, obviously, we, we have to sort of draw back a bit from our 
ambitious sort of globalization and participation in this, you know, system. But hopefully we won't go back to, you know, the 1930s and seal ourselves off, but we actually will sort of retain a little bit of, you know, the large ambitions, but we have to scale them down. I mean, that's, that's the best case scenario I would see. And I don't know, maybe I'm just, you know, naive, but I mean, I, you know, I think there are really sort of long-term structures that can help us, you know, even, even if it looks very bleak at the moment. I mean, for the U.S., I mean, definitely looks very, you know, uh, critical, but I think there have been critical moments before in American history, and they also have been resolved. So, you know, there, there's case to be a little bit optimistic if you can sort of rely on your own traditions. Crossing North is a production of the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle. Today's episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Colin Joya Connors. Today's music was used with permission by Christian Hranar Paulsen. Links to his music can be found in the show notes for this episode or on our website. Visit scandinavian.washington.edu to learn more about the podcast and other exciting projects hosted by the Scandinavian Studies Department. If you are a current or prospective student, consider taking a course or declaring a major. You can find complete course listings for the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at scandinavian.washington.edu. Once again, that's scandinavian.washington.edu.